This is the Pain Information Network, 28. Today I've got Stan Helm on. Uh, love having him on. East Coast, West Coast. We talk about a lot of things today. We talk about regulatory issues, talk a little marijuana. We talk about some other medications. And we talk about why we do some things that we do, including how do we pick medicines? How do we know we pick the right medicines? Where we're going? And once again, back to that very important uh, part of any conversation you have with a physician or a care provider. Where do you want to be three, six, nine, and 12 months? That's the benchmarks. How do you set your benchmarks in a very short visit with a pain provider or somebody that's offering pain care? And, and how can you start thinking like they're thinking? That's pretty much where we're headed with this. So let's get to it. Here's Stan Helm, as promised, a frequent contributor to the podcast, greatly appreciated. Uh, He's a uh, big name in pain medicine, specifically interventional pain medicine, but his depth of uh, treatment goes very far. An expert in controlled substances, an author, I've had him on the show before, never disappoints. How are you doing, Stan? I'm doing well, Hans. How are you doing? You've got the storm in there today, I think. Oh, God, do we have a storm. It's uh, it's an ice storm, and I, I don't have a good word for ice other than I, I, I have to put words together like I hate it. But this too shall pass, and uh, uh, for fun, although this dates the show a little, we're going to be uh, playing for the championship, uh, NFL championship, the uh, local team here, and we'll see how far they go. Well, I think there will be many listeners who will know the answer to that question by the time they listen. <laughs> You're right. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the future of medicine, uh, what managed care is as it sits. And it's 2016, it's January. Um, we have some kind of interesting uh, things to work through, don't we, Stan? We have some real problems. The, uh, it's the law of no good deed will go unpunished. One of the things that was embedded into the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, is the desire to have patient satisfaction be a factor in rating both physicians and medical groups. And you can surely understand the uh, necessity for that. Uh, we want patients to be treated with respect and to uh, feel that their opinions and, uh, and needs are being responded to. But one of the issues we've got coming out of that is the issue of prescribing opioids. Since about 2012, it's become readily apparent that the number of uh, opioids being prescribed directly relates to the number of people dying and directly relates to the... Um, number of admissions for rehab and a number of uh, ER admits. So it's, it's a huge problem, and I, it's, it's a public health problem, uh, to my mind, akin to uh, making sure you've got a clean water supply. Yeah, and the ER is a good, uh, a good source of understanding. There's an uh, actual organization that follows uh, uh, the ER and their potential for admissions and their potential for catastrophes. You can tell, tell us a little bit about that. The Drug Abuse Warning Network. 
Yes, the uh, ERs report to uh, the federal government the uh, number of uh, patients they're seeing with these uh, particular problems with uh, drug overdose, and it provides uh, a good way of monitoring why patients, what, what, what the drugs are that are causing problems. True. The limit, it's a litmus it test. Now, the, yeah. the, the one that uh, the 800-pound gorilla is prescription drugs. You could add up heroin and cocaine together, and you wouldn't have as many ER visits as you've got for prescription drugs. So prescription drugs are a huge problem. You know, and, and secondly, the United States is the place in the world that uses all these prescription drugs. You go to other parts of the country. I was speaking to a high-ranking um, Middle Eastern official uh, when I was over there teaching one time, and his wife was having problems, and we were discussing what to give her, and uh, we settled on uh, acetaminophen, Tylenol. <laughs> and he was very happy with that. Sure. You know, I'll be talking about methadone in the next podcast. Methadone is about 3% of the prescriptions for pain, and it's a cheap drug. It's really cheap. But it's responsible for about 35% of the deaths. So when you look at the Drug Abuse Warning Network as a litmus test for what's happening out there and kind of a finger in the wind, if you will, um, you also have to break it down into subcategories. What is and who is dying from what? There's usually alcohol involved. There's benzodiazepines involved. And when it, it comes right down to it, um, physicians are, are the tip of the pen. We have to be very proactive of what we write, what we dispense, and know what we're giving for the right reasons. Yeah, the, the problem that the ER doctors and the uh, family practitioners have is that they'll have patients come in asking them to uh, – provide opioids. Uh, it may well not be the best choice for that patient, and the physicians may not know that, but there is uh, a lot of drama associated with not fulfilling those requests. And also, the uh, physicians get negative reviews in terms of their patient satisfaction surveys. They're described as being rude and unresponsive uh, if they don't give the opioids. Now, the bulk of opioids in this country are being prescribed by primary care physicians. They don't have the ability are uh, set up in their offices to do things like run the prescription drug monitoring program reports, uh, do risk stratification in terms of either psychiatric uh, issues or uh, past issue with, uh, past or family issues with opioids uh, to obtain urine drug screens. So they're really you know, flying blind with this. It's a, a, um, a major problem, and uh, it, it, it's feeding to this public health issue. Mm -hmm. You brought up three things, three really important things. Those uh, physician rating systems, um, when we deal with pain, it's a, a direct, directly inverse uh, to the quality of care than you would expect. It's a one-way street. So if uh, the physician is consistently getting one stars, he's doing the right thing for the right reason and giving patients what they need, not what they want. Therefore, there's a retaliation, and it, it's a one-way street. We can't, due to HIPAA and privacy laws and that sort of thing, respond to these things. Therefore, a, a good pain doctor can look terrible. A good ER doctor can look terrible online. So take those things with a grain of salt. And, and number two, hospitals, hospitals are, are required, as you said, to monitor quality of care. 
And one thing patients do is if they don't get what they want, they bash that hospital, particularly the ER. So the ER is a little more inclined to kind of give them some stuff. Do you agree with that? Well, it's not only the ERs, it's also, we've got consolidation going on in medicine. So people are selling their practices and they're becoming employees. And one of the things that happens when they become employees, they start being monitored on various parameters. How many patients are you seeing? Are you productive? Are your patients happy? Uh, All of these things. And if you're spending time fighting with patients about giving them opioids, or if you're not giving them opioids and you're getting negative uh, ratings, then uh, the administration comes back to you and says, why are you doing so poorly? You're not doing poorly at all. You're doing the right thing. But the, and given the rating system we've got, which I think needs to be revisited, uh, you are doing poorly. It's time to take a look as to how, as to how we evaluate physician um, uh, productivity quality, and quality and see if we can more align it with our public health needs. Yeah, and the third thing you said is... <clears throat> The, unbelievably, but believable on our end, is most of the controlled substances, uh, especially the ones that uh, are loosey-goosey, uh, tend to come from sources you wouldn't expect, primary care, orthopedics, and that sort of thing, internal medicine, and not from qualified pain centers or rehab facilities. They come from places, like you said, that do not have the resources or personnel to monitor them. I think people would be kind of surprised you brought up the PDMP or uh, the prescription drug monitoring program. What that is is a uh, computer we ping in our area that shows us where the uh, prescription was filled, by who, and uh, how much of what drug. That takes time, but it's it's a requirement. I actually do criminal background checks on everybody. You'd, you'd be kind of stunned out there <laughs> what's going on. So all of that's public record. We don't do it to be uh, policemen. We do it for safety, for community safety, and for patient safety. That's correct. We, we all like our patients, and we all believe in our patients, and we all want our patients to do well. What happens is that with inappropriate prescribing, patients die. And what I've seen, uh, the scenario in which that occurs can be that people are taking the medicine appropriately, but maybe they're taking multiple medicines at the same time. Maybe they're having a little alcohol with the medicines. Maybe they get a little bit sick. Maybe they get more physically active during a period of being deconditioned. But something happens to get them out of balance, and uh, despite everything looking good, uh, you can have a tragic outcome, and we simply want to avoid that. The uh, we used to say that the number of uh, opioid-related deaths was the number uh, was equal to the number of car accident deaths per year, but in fact, last year that increased. We're even though we're aware of the problem, the problem seems to be getting worse, which is uh, paradoxical and unfortunate. Yeah, and even though we have all these monitoring programs and they're getting more robust, and we're doing more things like pill counts and urine drug screens and the like, still more people are dying, and we're not. Punitive when we ask you for a, a urine drug test. That's just like asking for a blood test to check your blood counts. What we're doing is we're, we're looking for medicines that are in there. We're looking for pot- potential contaminants. We're looking for if the drug is not there. We're looking for problems with the drug. And sometimes we even see if we, if, how you metabolize the drug by doing uh, genetic testing. So it's, it's kind of complicated. It takes a lot of work. And patients sometimes don't like it. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, genetic testing is actually a whole different topic that we ought to explore at some point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a whole podcast. It's fascinating, especially urine drug testing. It's fascinating, too. It's kind of got, it's taken on a life of its own uh, in the United States, urine drug testing. That, yeah, that, 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 that is a podcast. I've had many conversations on that, and I think there's <laughs> both those topics are rich and interesting. Yeah, you know, Stan, we uh, touched before uh, the podcast on morphine, and uh, I actually did a full podcast on morphine. I did one on oxycodone. I love you. I hate you. Now these are these are good drugs. They're powerful drugs. And, and then I st- people are now asking me, well, how do you pick a drug? How do you know? Now they all have risks. And what drug is the important one to know about? And I, I tell them, just as you brought up earlier, morphine equivalents. Morphine is a gold standard. And oxycodone is wildly abused in the community. It's candy. People want the candy. They had a taste of the candy. They want the candy. How do you pick a drug? How do I pick it? You know, I start out uh, first trying to use short-acting drugs. I try to use the uh, generic drugs just for uh, cost purposes. If I'm using a short-acting drug, my personal preference is to keep that at four few pills or fewer per day. I find that the people who are really getting a bang for the buck, the uh, 60-odd-year-old roofer who can still climb a ladder and look around at scaffolding with a bad neck, uh, does that with three uh, Norco a day. Uh, but I view them as molecules uh, acting uh, essentially at the same receptor, and you just have to I- experiment. Uh, there is no test that will show that one drug is better than another drug for any one person. The only exception, of course, is the methadone, which you mentioned earlier, which is so complex with its metabolism and plagued by its long half-life that it really is a... Uh, uh, a special case for high risk. Yeah, it really is. It's a it's a tough drug to handle, and it's hard hard to believe some people in our listening audience uh, they they hear heroin and they hear it on the street and how bad heroin is. But you know, some places it's actually used, and that's parts of the world. It's not here in the United States. And the United States is a Schedule One drug. That means there's no clinical use for it. That's what it means. It doesn't necessarily mean potency. We've gone through this. The schedule does not necessarily mean potency. It's just abusability. Um, but, you know, so when we, when we look at the big picture and we're picking a drug, we're picking it assuming we know some certain things about you. Your comorbidities, can you handle the drug? Are you frail, elderly? Are you going to be able to metabolize the drug? We get into genetics on that. Uh, two pathways, maybe more, get rid of the drug. The other drugs you're on, the uh, adjunctive medication, you know, we can dramatically diminish the opioid load or the amount of opioids we give you by using adjunctive medication, like the gabapentinoids, for example, correct? Absolutely, and that's very important, and that does help us uh, wean uh it's interesting. I heard last night, parenthetically, about gabapentin that uh, in some settings people are beginning to use it as a drug of abuse. I'm not quite sure why unless they're looking for the uh, sedative a- aspect. Uh, but yeah. it's, you know, the, the use of the adjuncts uh, is a problem. And, and a related issue is uh, dentists prescribing. Now, 
they are oftentimes very uh, free to prescribe the um, opioids. Somebody was uh, providing uh, 20 Vicodin every time somebody's teeth got cleaned, and they asked why they were getting the 20 Vicodin each time. The response is, we don't want to get a bad review on Yelp. And the difficulty is once you start the opioids, it can really, for whatever cause, it can lead to uh, long-term use. Uh, hopefully the work comp carriers or our work comp clinics are no longer providing opioids uh, as the first uh, line of treatment. It used to be everyone in there would get an anti-inflammatory, a muscle relaxant, and a uh, opioid. Uh, and, you know, that that's a practice that we want to see changed. The... Um, they used to use something called a dental model of uh, testing for opioids, and that would compare a opioid to uh, ibuprofen with, uh, in, in it, where people were getting dental work. And the reason they were doing that is just to show that the the opioid was as good as the ibuprofen, not that it was better. So the, it. That's really a testimony as to how effective the anti-inflammatories are in relieving pain. Yeah. I do some addiction work. I think uh, I think I mentioned this on the podcast. I, I actually am bored in addiction. And, and this is, a, this is a, a typical patient that you just talked about that I see once or twice a week, a 24-ish year old, male or female, doesn't matter, comes to my office and they're looking for buprenorphine or Suboxone, Subutex is the uh, trade name, and they want to get off the opioids because they're sick of buying them on the street. How did you get hooked? Well, <clears throat> my dentist, uh, my brother then, or my mother then, these things are so available. They are just so freaking available that uh, it's, it's easy to get hooked. I, I can't emphasize enough to the listeners that um, it's not a moral failing if you start having cravings or you think you're hooked on these drugs, but it's something you have to treat or you can get in trouble fast. Boy, I, I can't agree with that, that last point more. There, it, it's not a moral failing. It's not a uh, defin of you, definition of you as a uh, bad person. It's just the way the body is wired. These drugs are very, very subject to uh, causing craving. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, 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 one thing that concerns me is in listening to some of the kids talk, I don't know if you've ever heard this, Hans, but they'll go on about opioids and say, gee, you don't die from opioid withdrawal. If you take the opioids and you stop taking them, you're not going to die. But if you take, you know, particularly Xanax and you stop it abruptly, you can have some real problems. And that type of argument is special pleading and really misses the point. The problem with opioids isn't the withdrawal. The problem with the opioids is the uh, respiratory depression and death. And that's what these kids who are making this argument um, don't get. They're they're, uh, somehow getting the drugs and justifying their uh, use of it uh, by claiming that it is in some way safe. And that's just a fallacious, wrong argument. You know, I'm going to open this can of worms, and you're in a marijuana state. And, Correct. You know, I'm talking kids, and I'm talking about brain development, neurobiology, and this sort of thing. But I'm also talking about older people and drug substituting. And 
you have to see a lot of marijuana in your practice, and I don't know. I don't know what you do about it out there because in North Carolina, where I'm at, it's it's illegal across the board. It's it's a Schedule One drug, according to the DEA. It's illegal in the United States. How do you handle that? Well, I fudge, and this is a personal call. Some people take my position; other people take uh, the position you would take in North Carolina. Now, if someone has a uh, a license to uh, use marijuana for med- medicinal purposes. Uh, then I allow it, even though the feds continue to view it as a Schedule One drug. The um, issue is uh, that, you know, what, what are you going to do? I, I just uh, will, I continue to treat them. Most people aren't using that much. Uh, the cost is high. If they're really in it just to be a stoner, they're really not coming here with pain complaints. I work hard to make sure that the people whom we're seeing have legitimate re- medical reason to have the opioids. Uh, I've actually had people who stopped using the opioids and just use marijuana, but that's the extreme minority. You think it's a pain medicine? Uh, if you listen to uh, Mark Wallace down at UCSD, who's done most of the uh, work on this, he'll argue that it is, uh, it's a Goldilocks drug. Too little doesn't work. Uh, too much will not work and even cause psychosis. But there is an intermediate dose that might work for, um, uh, for some indications. Yeah, Gardner. One of the problems, too, we've got is, we, you know, you, you go into your uh, dispensary and... You know, the, the dose might be 100 milligrams of THC, uh, and they're selling it to you in a cookie, and the, and the dose of the cookie is or is one-tenth of a cookie. Well, you know, who eats one-tenth of a cookie? <laughs> and then you get the variations. Uh, they've done assays, and, you know, a dose may contain anywhere from no THC to uh, double the amount that says. Yeah. Uh, so it's yeah. the whole thing right now is a mess. It just needs to be yeah, I know. codified in some way and um, clarified. I think that politically, there's no question that we're moving in the direction of more widespread legalization. This the usage of it is so high uh, that I, I I don't see how that's going to stop. Uh, I happen to have an office that adjoins a uh, retirement community. And the, you know, the, the folks in that community, the boomers are beginning to retire and they've gotten the, the, basically the retirement community is incorporated as a city and they've gotten the city to legalize the uh, dispensing of marijuana. Now, there aren't any dispensaries in the city, but uh, nonetheless, uh, the fact that people who grew up in the 60s are now um, reaching retirement uh Coupled with the uh, the kids, I think it's just uh, inevitable that there will be broader legalization. Yeah, I, I think we all word search on this because we aren't getting any guidance from anybody. Um, but we could have the greatest consequences if we don't do it right as physicians. And we first want to do no harm. Now, I will I will say this: Elliot Gardner, he's an NIH guy, National Institute of Health, I believe he is. But he's a um, researcher and has uh, extensive experience neurobiologically with the cannabinoid receptor. Believe it or not, our brain has receptors for cannabinoids, the active ingredient in marijuana. He says it's a pain drug. He said it's a pain drug. And uh, given the right way, it can be a pain drug. 
Now, that doesn't necessarily mean um, that you're going to smoke it because there's no way to meter it. But when, when you think about marijuana, <laughs> medical marijuana, which is just insane, um, it, it became political, exactly what you said. It's a way to get votes because it takes drug companies billions of dollars and years and years of research to get something by uh, the FDA. Medical marijuana gets voted in. Go figure. So <laughs> that's, that's yeah, my take on it. That also, just to make things even more fun, that recent catastrophe in France during the um, phase one studies of this drug, which, as I understand it, did contain THC, and Lord knows what else, uh, with uh, with deaths and healthy volunteers. Yeah, talk about that. I, I I think our listeners would be interested to hear that. Yeah, a phase one study, when, when there are clinical trials done to make sure that a drug is um, uh, safe uh, for release and, and effective, the, the first thing that is done are various animal studies. And then when it gets into humans, you've got phase one, phase two, and phase three studies. Phase one studies are very small-scale, highly controlled studies. Uh, they're generally done in a setting that's the equivalent of an ICU, where you bring healthy volunteers in, very small numbers, and you give them the drug just to try and figure out what the dosage should be. Should it be a, a microgram or a milligram? Uh, you know, starting out, you really just have the vaguest idea from the animal studies. And those don't always translate over. So these are very highly controlled. Then you get to phase two studies, which deal more with uh, efficacy and safety in smaller populations than phase three studies, which deal with efficacy and safety in uh, larger populations. And at that point, when you're done with the phase three, you go to the FDA and ask for um, approval of the drug. So this was a phase one study, uh, really a dosage study, very tightly controlled, highly monitored. Only very specialized facilities can do this. Uh, because of the level of uh, expertise and uh, care that you need to bring to this type of study. Uh, and they were doing a drug that was evidently used for treatment of pain. Uh, the, the precise indication isn't quite clear. Exactly what was in the drug isn't quite uh, clear, although it did. One of the components seems to have been uh, tetrahydrocannabinol. And there were, I believe, six or seven people who were, had severe problems and required admission to the um, hospital. Uh, one patient who died immediately and the second one, as I understand it, who died uh, not long thereafter. And this just doesn't happen uh, in phase one studies. The last incidence of something like this was perhaps a decade ago. Uh, and it's, it's very, uh, it's, it's a real bell ringing that, you know, something's very wrong here, and we've got to figure out what the problem is and make sure it doesn't happen again. <clears throat> that, that's a good, concise uh, summary. So what we do uh, as physicians, is, and that just underscores everything, is we take the risk-reward benefit, we try to weigh it with about everything we do, and we try to keep you safe. So, Stan, I, I want to thank you for coming on board and giving us your wisdom for uh, this 30 minutes or so. And, uh, uh, you know, I always enjoy talking to you, you uh, East Coast, West Coast. I mean, it's, it's fun listening to uh, our differences really aren't that big. Uh, we're all pretty similar. At the World Institute of Pain, we were talking to um, folks from around the world, and we're pretty much trying to do the same thing and doing the same thing. 
So, uh, you know, once again, thanks for coming on board. Great. Well, thank you, Hans. A pleasure as always, and uh, enjoyed it. We'll have you back on. Thanks, Dan. Good. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. It's fun having Stan on. Stan's kind of my generation. Uh, uh, we trained uh, during a, a certain era. Uh, we didn't have necessarily MRIs. We didn't have all this technology. We had to think on our feet a little bit more. We didn't have fancy medications that we've got now um, with the uh, technology to back them sometimes. Um, it was just a different perspective altogether. And it's great hearing from a guy that is so flexible to change. That's what makes a fantastic physician is they are flexible to change because medicine changes weekly. You know, you want to stay ahead. And uh, Stan Stan is not only a, a national figure but an educator, and uh, he does a lot of authoring. Uh, he's coming up with some guidelines that uh, will be uh, reviewed the world over and a real contributor. We really enjoy having him on. He's no lightweight, that's for sure. Well, leave us a review at iTunes. Um, please, uh, it really keeps things moving here. And paininformation.com. I read every one of those things that come through, and I try to answer any questions I can. Uh, we look forward to our next uh, podcast, and uh, we're going to have Dr. Divin on. He's a uh, uh, Manhattan uh, physician that uh, I've had on before. Bright guy, uh, used to run a uh, uh, pain uh, training program, so he's cutting edge and uh, world class. We'll see you soon.